Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we enhance your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Doug Fields begins the first of a series on the electric brain. And the Australian government tells us to trust them and download their app. COVID safe. The Australian Federal Government has released a COVID-19 contact tracing app without fulfilling any of the safeguards they promised Australians they would take. They broke their promise to release a privacy impact assessment before they released the app. Instead, they released it on the same day, effectively negating the privacy impact assessment while being able to say they did one they broke their promise to release the source code for the app before releasing the app. This means that nobody can be confident of what the program does. There was no need for secrecy, unless there's something to hide. The government now promises again to release the source code in two weeks. They broke their promise that they'd wait for the Google and Apple joint venture into creating a privacy-respecting app to be released. Instead, they're using the failed Trace Together app from Singapore as their template. Singapore was only able to get 10% of their citizens to download the app, and they couldn't get it to work on iPhones. COVIDSafe works on iPhones badly. They broke their promise that they would release and pass protective legislation to make sure the app and its data can't be lawfully misused by the government and police. They released the app before passing any protective legislation. So we're almost completely unprotected. The enabling legislation merely says that you can't be refused entry to a business because you're not running the app. They broke their promise that data collected by the app would never leave Australia by choosing to have a central database on Amazon Web Services which is an American government jurisdiction. Under the Cloud Act, the US government can demand any data, even about foreign governments, from Amazon, unless they're on the exemption list. Australia is not on the exemption list. Nothing stored on Amazon Web Services is private from Amazon or the US government. Astonishingly, the Prime Minister defended this issue by stating that the Australian Defence Signals Directorate store their most secret secrets on Amazon Web Services. So it must be okay. It's puzzling the government chose an American service instead of an Australian one. The app runs on Android and iPhone. You download the app from Google Play or from the Apple App Store. The app asks you for your name or a fake name your real phone number, your age range, and your postcode. None of this information is needed for contact tracing. 
but the data is very useful for building statistics on both the usage of the app and the people you're in contact with, and perhaps even the spread of COVID-19. This is function creep, where the app is already doing more than we were promised. The temptation to add more features was irresistible. The metadata retention laws, for example, were passed with the promise that they would only be used by police investigating terrorism and equally serious crimes. It's now used by local councils to check compliance with permits and thousands of other minor institutions for surveillance. They don't need your name for tracing, which is why they say you can use a pseudonym. If they don't need it, then why ask for it? If you trust the government enough to download an app with no safeguards, then of course you'll likely give them your real name. The app being developed by Apple and Google is anonymous and doesn't endanger your privacy by asking for your name. They don't need your phone number for tracing because they could easily contact you through the app. However, in Australia, you can't get a mobile phone number without sharing government-issued identification like a driver's license or a passport with a phone vendor. So if they have your mobile phone number, then they also have your real name, at the least. They don't need your age range for contact tracing, but it's very useful for collecting statistics. Ironically, the reason it's an age range and not your exact age is because it's the only item from the privacy impact assessment that made it into the released app. They don't need your postcode for contact tracing, but it is nice to confirm your identity against other databases and for collecting statistics. On Android phones, you have to agree to give the app location permissions for Bluetooth to work. The app isn't recording your location with Wi-Fi or GPS. However, this permission will be useful if they decide to add a location feature in the app in the future. Once you've given your name, phone number, age range and postcode, the app will send you a text message to verify your phone number. The government has actually said that they need your phone number for the reason that they need to verify your phone number by sending you a text. They need your number to check your number. That's not a reason, but it shut a lot of journalists up. In the text message is a personal information number for you to enter. Once you enter the number and click on a box that says you want to help, then the app contacts the government server in the Amazon Web Server's data center and you're issued with a unique ID code. Your phone then broadcasts your unique ID to any Bluetooth receiver, changing your unique ID every two hours, if it can connect to the internet. If it can't connect to the internet, then it keeps the same unique ID for longer. The original Singapore app received new unique IDs every 15 minutes which makes you much harder to track than every two hours. When the app connects to the central server, the server can tell if the app was turned off for any time. The fact that the unique IDs persist for two hours or more means that if a shopping mall had Bluetooth scanners, they could read your broadcast ID and track you as you went from the range of one Bluetooth scanner to the next. Although the intention of the app is to only identify people you've been one and a half metres or closer to, for 15 metres or more, it records everybody you've been in contact with in the 10 metre radius that Bluetooth can reach, even through walls and windows, and stores their unique IDs on your phone. 
In order to reduce that 10 metres down to 1.5 metres, the app broadcasts, without encryption, the brand and model of your phone, along with your unique ID. It then records the brand and model of the phones in Bluetooth range around you, along with their unique IDs, on your phone. This list of contacts with phones and unique IDs within a 10 metre radius, and the time and date, is stored on your phone without any encryption. This means that anyone who takes your phone can read this data and get a list of all your contacts. The Australian Federal Government announced a few weeks ago its intention to pass legislation requiring you to unlock your phone and give any and all passwords to the authorities or face jail time. Broadcasting Bluetooth all day uses up your battery quickly and stops you using other Bluetooth apps like your earphones or speakers. It's not that difficult for someone to write an app to listen to these broadcasts and record them. The intention is that if your doctor tells you you test positive, then you press a button on the app to send all this data to the central server. On the central server, a database of signal strength for each brand and model of phone calculates which contacts were only as close as 1.5 metres and which were further away. There's no reason that this calculation couldn't have been performed on your phone. It means that the unneeded list of contacts further away than 1.5 metres in every direction is stored and sent to the central server. The Privacy Impact Assessment talks about the privacy principle of minimising data collection so that you only collect what you absolutely need. This collection of everyone in a 10 metre radius violates that principle. For human contact tracing, a professional interviews you about all the contacts you've had in the last two weeks before your symptoms showed up, to the time you received your positive results. It's usually two weeks. The professional then has to laboriously find the names and phone numbers of the people you've been in contact with to phone them to get tested or go into isolation. That's really hard if you sat next to someone on a bus or a train that you don't know. Of course, under lockdown, very few people are travelling on public transport and they're all socially distanced, so that's not really an issue. Very few people are getting closer than one and a half metres to anyone who's not a health professional or a member of their family, because that's the law. A contact tracing app becomes more useful in a future where people are no longer distancing, but unidentified infected people are still circulating. This Australian federal government has a history of function creep and abuse. When journalist Andy Fox criticised Australia's welfare agency Centrelink, Minister Stuart Robert gave her private information from the Centrelink database to journalists from a rival newspaper to publish. He doxed her. He was advised it was illegal, but there had been no consequences for his crime. The metadata retention laws have also been abused to raid the home of journalist Annika Smethurst for reporting that the Australian government was seeking to legally spy on Australians. The court recently found that the police acted unlawfully, but allowed them to keep the data they took from her underwear drawer. The police used the metadata laws to raid the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC, because it reported that Australian soldiers had committed atrocities in Afghanistan and that was covered up. They also raided the offices of the opposition Labor Party for allegedly leaking information about how badly the national broadband network is doing. 
Minister Stuart Robert is in charge of the COVID Safe app. Robert is also the man responsible for the robo debts, which turned out to be fake debts that the government will have to repay, the fake hacking of the census computer that turned out to be people using the website as instructed, the fake hacking of the Centrelink website, which turned out just to be people using the website as instructed, and my health records, which don't work. The time for a proper contact tracing app was months ago. Tracing is only useful if you're working towards New Zealand's total elimination policy. Prime Minister Scott Morrison said in an interview with Lee Sales on ABC's 7.30 report that he's following a suppression strategy, not an elimination strategy. Suppression means everybody gets the virus, and recovers or not, but slowly enough that hospitals are not overwhelmed. I won't be even considering downloading the app until the full source code has been released and protective legislation has been passed. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Brain Waves. R. Douglas Fields is the author of The Electric Brain, a book about brain waves and the ability to interrogate and manipulate the brain through electrical activity. He's a neuroscientist whose focus of research is mechanisms of memory, the cellular mechanisms by which the brain works. I spoke to him by Skype and began by asking Doug, what are brain waves? And what is the brain doing when it generates the waves? Well, that's a great question. I think people are, they've heard of brain waves, but they really don't understand what they are. And the information that's available to the general public is pretty non-scientific <laughs> and very superficial. But also, people aren't aware of the revolution that's taking place right now in brain science. The ability to monitor electrical activity in the brain is allowing us to gain insight into neurological disorders, be able to diagnose uh, psychological conditions, but also to reveal capabilities of a person's capabilities, their IQ, their cognitive ability, these kinds of things. So this is going to transform medicine. Most of what I'm talking about now is in research labs around the world, but it will find its way into clinical practice very soon. But I was very interested in brain waves. First of all, they're one of the most important discoveries in neuroscience, but we don't know much about them in general. They're a major controversy right now in the field of neuroscience. Why aren't they taught in college, in neuro, not even taught in neuroscience classes? Why don't we know the name of the person who discovered them? So there's a big mystery here. But in general, brain waves are electromagnetic waves that are generated by electrical activity taking place in populations of neurons in the cerebral cortex, the surface layer of the brain. And when groups of neurons fire electrical impulses together, this generates electric fields, and these fields can penetrate through the scalp and be picked up by electrodes on the scalp, an EEG. Now, the interesting thing about brain waves is that they're oscillatory. 
they come in different frequencies and very complicated signals, but they're oscillating. And they change with cognitive state. They change with your emotion, with your vigilance, with arousal, and they can reveal your conscious and preconscious cognition. So people understand that neurons generate signals by generating electrical impulses, but when you have populations of neurons together, that creates these electromagnetic fields. So the analogy that's often used is listening to a crowd in a stadium. That would be like uh, recording brainwaves. It's a population phenomenon. You can't get the individual conversations, but you could understand a lot about what was going on in, inside the, the, uh, the ballpark by listening to the crowd. That's what EEG and brainwave, that's how they're generated, and that's uh, the level of information that we can get with them. There's also people trying to influence brainwaves by feeding currents into the brain. Yes. Well, because brainwaves change with your cognitive state, the idea is that if you can change brain waves, then you could change cognition or you could treat psychological illnesses or neurological illnesses. So there are many ways to modulate and change brain waves. People know they come in different frequencies, given Greek letters, delta, theta, alpha, beta, gamma, gamma being the highest frequency. Those oscillate at about up to 100 hertz. And the delta waves are the very slow waves that are one per second or even slower. These brain waves can be controlled by many different ways to stimulate the brain. You can drive electrical activity with magnetic pulses through the scalp. You can, of course, use electrodes and plant chips. You can just use direct current. You could build this yourself with nine volt batteries. I'm not recommending it. People do it. <laughs> and just uh, deliver current, weak currents through the scalp. But you know, you don't even need any of this technology. You can use neurofeedback which I described in the book. I had never done this before. Very interesting and a therapeutic method. And even rhythmic stimulation, flashing lights at a certain rhythm will entrain the brain waves at those same rhythms. I mean, brain waves are modulated by music, for example, or listening to rhythmic sounds. In the extreme, people probably, have, I'm sure, have heard of people who have epilepsy that can be induced by flashing lights. And that's just because the brain waves are getting synchronized with that frequency of flashing lights. But there's new research showing that, uh, i just give one example, modulating brainwave frequencies in the gamma frequency band by using flashing lights is being used to clear beta amyloid, which is the toxic protein in Alzheimer's disease. Is that very effective? Yes, it's, it's very, very effective. This is being done, of course, in experimental animals, but it's, there are clinical trials underway now. But very effective in the animal model studies, rhythmic light or rhythmic sound can do this. And what's happening is the brain waves are becoming entrained to the frequency. And this is activating a kind of brain cell called a microglial cell that is then in inducing the microglial cell to actually eat the beta amyloid, take up the beta amyloid. So a wide range of capabilities to control, to treat neurological, psychological conditions, to enhance cognitive performance, mood relaxation by modulating brain waves through electrical means, but also things like neurofeedback or rhythmic stimulation. With feedback, you've also got visual feedback you could have where you can see your own brain waves and try and influence them. Well, I, I suppose, but it's very interesting. Neurofeedback, the way it works is brain waves are monitored, analyzed in real time, and then some auditory tone is 
given to indicate that the brainwave frequencies or power are shifting in the way that is desired. And the brain will, through this reward mechanism, change the brainwaves. So there's no conscious thought. I thought it would be some sort of something like a video game where you're concentrating and trying to rack up points. It's completely automatic. I have seen very crude computer games where they were trying to make you think they picked up on brainwaves, but they were really picking up on galvanic skin response to try and get the same sort of result in changing your mental state. Two things there, yes. I mean, there's biofeedback. Biofeedback uses many kinds of bodily sensations, heart rate, for example, to change cognition and, and brain function. The other aspect of what you're talking about here is that there is a tremendous industry of devices, consumer devices on the internet that are available for cognitive enhancement and therapeutic purposes. And we, in many cases, don't even know what they're doing because the mechanisms, you know, the manufacturers don't provide the information to know really what's being measured. So it could be muscle contraction. It could be all kinds of things. So what I'm talking about is sophisticated analytical equipment used in the best research laboratories that under carefully controlled conditions shows that you can modulate your brain waves and have these therapeutic benefits. That's amazing because as you say, there's so many of these products and a lot of them either didn't work very well or they were only worked as well as toys. But the idea that you could do this unconsciously just by listening, I guess you would be told which tones are the ones you're trying to go for. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, I describe it in the book in sort of a, a real-time experience. It's completely automatic, and I was bewildered. Some neurofeedback practitioners do give instructions and coach their clients, but the experience that I had, the practitioners did not do that at all. That's amazing. So it's really you just listen without knowing what the intention is, and your brain changes and your mind goes in the direction that the therapist intends. Yes, you know, I, I think people overlook how much of what we do is done unconsciously, and that's what happens with neurofeedback. Amazing. So that has all sorts of sinister as well as beneficial connotations. Well, the ability to monitor electrical activity in the brain gives tremendous insight into IQ. I give some examples and learning capability. You can measure a child's brain activity before they go to school and know how well that child will read when they eventually go to school and start to read. You'll know if they are going to struggle or learn to read normally. That's really going to have some profound impacts on education and career choices. I went to a lab in Washington University, University of Washington in Seattle, Chantelle Pratt's lab. She claimed that she could monitor my brain waves while I did nothing but let my mind wander for five minutes. And determine whether I could learn a second language easily or would struggle. So I challenged her to do that, and, and uh, she was able to do that. It's quite amazing. It is amazing. So would you be able to get people to sleep or to meditate or to into a more receptive learning state of mind by playing these tones and they'd unconsciously just entrain into the right state of mind? Yes. I visited neurofeedback practitioners, and, and they help clients that have anxiety and uh, disorders and autism want to improve cognition or relaxation. So that can all be done. 
There are other methods to monitor electrical activity in the brain non-invasively, for example, functional MRI or mm. using lasers, near-infrared spectroscopy. And using these methods, scientists are able to decipher cognition, be able to know what a person is thinking. Marcel Just at Carnegie Mellon University, and I talk about him in the book, I visited his lab, doing amazing things and being able to know what number you're thinking of, uh, even that's, academic subjects. That's like subjects. a magic trick. <laughs> it is, but it's, it's really getting at a fundamental mechanism about how the brain works. He can use this method to know what you're, you're reading. So he can decipher a person reading a sentence. And this is giving insight into how the brain organizes information. And, and it's quite fascinating. So although it superficially comes off as, well, we're doing this parlor trick of trying to read minds, of course, that's not what the researchers are motivated by. They're trying to understand how the brain works, how the brain perceives and modifies and classifies information and understands language. And then, you know, the best way to test your understanding is then to reverse engineer, to be able to say, well, we can now, not only do we know how the brain is handling language, we can predict what this person is thinking because we can test our knowledge of how the brain activity would be changing according to that sentence, for example. This has a lot of profound implications. He, he was able to determine people who had suicidal thoughts. And that's extremely powerful because people who have suicidal thoughts often conceal them. And even their loved ones don't know. You know therapists don't know. And it's a tragic, impulsive act. You know, you think of Robin Williams and Anthony Bourdain. Um, these come as shocks, usually, very often. So the ability to know that a person is having these suicidal thoughts could be very, very helpful, life-saving. could promote therapy because you could, you could actually monitor how therapy or drugs are improving the condition. But this is done by comparing their brain responses to hearing certain words like happiness, death, sadness, and finding that their brain circuitry responds differently to those words than the average response of the population. So that raises the question, what point do you decide somebody's brain activity deviates from so-called normal that you would take some sort of action? That was part one of my interview with Doug Fields about the electric brain. R. Douglas Fields has also written The Other Brain about non-neuronal cells in the brain that communicate without electricity and Why We Snap about the neuronal circuitry of sudden aggression. Listen next week for more about the electric brain. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the Community Radio Network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 
three MBR-only Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash Ian Wolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.